0: Welcome to the Graduates, a radio show dedicated to graduate student research here at Berkeley. My name is Stephanie Gerson. I'm a graduate student myself, and I'll be your hostess for the show here on KALX Berkeley. So today I'm talking to Hania Kover, a PhD student in neuroscience. So welcome, Hania. Thank you. Uh, we're going to be talking about her research on the neural basis of perception. So just to start out, can you give us a brief introduction to your work? Okay, so basically I'm in the neuroscience
1: department and what we're really interested in is understanding how perception works. And so basically what that means, we take it for granted that as we walk around, we can see objects and we can hear music and we can feel things, but actually how this actually happens, how we perceive all these things around us and are able to make sense of the really complicated streams of data that are coming in from outside is one of the biggest unsolved
0: mysteries in neuroscience. Wow. Okay. Well, just to give some background, can you talk a little bit about how we understand perception? Okay,
1: so I think the first person who really started trying to understand what perception was and trying to get a clue about you know how the brain gives rise to perception was an English neurologist who lived in the nineteenth century uh, called John Jackson, and what he had several patients that had epileptic seizures. In various parts of their brain and he found that whenever these patients had a seizure they would perceive things that weren't there so they would be like oh my goodness my hand is tingling or wow I can see like really bright colors and it would just take a couple of minutes and once the seizure was over they would no longer perceive it and so he was the first person to actually say well you know when something goes wrong in the activity of neurons when they start firing in situations where they shouldn't be firing people perceive things Mm -hmm. therefore the firing of neurons must be what brings about perception Mm. and sort of later in the 1950s there was an American neurologist who sort of pioneered this technique of brain stimulation so he would stick electrodes in his patient's brains and this was you know way back when when you could do this kind of stuff and he would stimulate different areas and he found that depending on where he stimulated the patients would tell him that they felt different things so they would be like wow like I can see my childhood home or I can you know I can I can recall this really complex memory of when I was in you know on vacation in Africa or something or I can hear music and all kinds of really complicated things and so he also said wow you know different parts of the brain lead to different kinds of sensations and he sort of started mapping the brain and finding that different areas of the brain uh, like the activity of neurons in different areas of the brain give rise to different kinds of perception and so what we know nowadays is that Visual perception takes uh, takes place mainly in the visual cortex, which is at the back of the brain. We know that auditory perception takes place in the auditory cortex, which is sort of on the side of the brain. Olfactory perception, so the perception of smell, takes place at the front of the brain in the olfactory cortex. So we know where these neurons are that are giving rise to perception in different areas, but what we really don't understand is how they give rise to perception, Mm -hmm. right? So neurons fire in visual cortex and we, we see a tree, but how does that work? Mm -hmm. what exactly are those neurons doing who is who is decoding the activity of these neurons so there's this whole problem of like you know is there a soul sitting back there that's reading out the activity of neurons or you know presumably that's not the case and the neurons themselves are generating this percept and that's really what we're trying to understand with our research is Mm. the mechanisms of perception rather than where it's happening or you know we already know that it's the result of neurons firing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's sort of the premise, and we're trying to understand specifically how the firing of neurons gives rise to perception. Mm-hmm.
0: But when you pose the question as how, what what kind of answer are you expecting? I mean, how... So neurons fire, and then we see a tree, and what 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 are you looking for in between those two things happening? Are you looking for... I don't even know.
1: It, I mean, that's a very good question. We really don't know what we're looking for ourselves, right? Neurons fire and we see a tree. You know, how do, how does that work? We don't know.
0: But The woman behind the curtain sitting back exactly, there. Exactly. Like, it's really... On the controls.
1: You know, sort of the way people think of this. Like, for example, visual perception. People think that, well, you know, our neurons must be just representing the world. And there's, like, a movie of the world playing inside. And someone's sitting there watching that movie. The problem is, is that that person sitting there watching that movie has to have a person sitting in their head watching that movie. And so you really run into like. A philosophical problem about how you know how perception works but the approach we take is we try to sort of look at situations in which perception is altered and perception is often altered because we actually don't perceive the world at all as it is mm-hmm. and depending on experience and depending what we're expecting we see or hear or feel things that aren't actually there mm-hmm. but they're sort of in line with what we want to see or hear or feel and so we can look at situations where perception is different in different conditions, and then we can look at the activity of neurons and try to understand what's different about the activity of neurons in each case. And that's sort of the approach we take to understanding how neurons are giving rise to mm-hmm. perception. Basically, we let experience change um, neural coding Mm -hmm. And then we look at how, we look at the neural coding by looking at the changes in area um, in the brain, basically, that are representing certain things. We work with auditory cortex, so we look at the area in the brain which represents certain sounds, and then we test behavior to see whether we can sort of see a correlation between the changes
0: in behavior or perception and changes in neural coding. So, okay, so in your research outline you say that when neural coding is trying to interpret some kind of a stimulus, um, it resorts to prior experience less when the stimulus is more certain. And, And correspondingly, it would resort to prior experience more if the stimulus is less certain. So first, just what does it mean for a stimulus to be certain or uncertain? So
1: basically, the idea there is that when we receive sensory inputs from the outside world, they're they're often incomplete, and we couldn't actually inf- like know what was going on just from the information we're getting. Mm-hmm. So, in many cases, like if we see if we see an object somewhere on the horizon, you know, somewhere in front of us, say a ball, that ball could be a really large ball that's really close to us, or a really small ball that's or sorry, the other way around. <laughs> that ball could be a small ball <laughs> that's close to us or a large ball really far away. And the visual information we're getting about that ball is actually definitely not enough to know what is going on in the situation. And so that's an example of sensory information that's uncertain. And it's been shown that as the sensory information that is coming in to assist to, to the brain, basically becomes more uncertain, the brain sort of relies more on prior experience Uh so it's been shown that if you blur visual stimuli for example the brain sort of the perception of that stimulus is more like things that the person has seen before Uh
0: than what it actually is certain or uncertain depends also on your prior experience well, because so it's not—it's not like stimuli themselves are certain or uncertain. They're certain or uncertain depending on, well, I guess some stimuli that can be interpreted different ways, like the one mm-hmm. that you just said. But it also depends on your prior experience whether. Your brain ends up using prior experience in order to interpret whatever this thing Exactly, exactly.
1: Is. If you're in a novel situation, if you've never experienced anything like this before, you have nothing. You have no prior information to incorporate into your percept, so you're going to have to work with what you have. Mm-hmm. But it's been shown that basically. You know, if if you have visual information and touch information and sound information, Mm. you sort of integrate all those together, and then you add in prior experience, Mm and that's that's what happens every time we perceive something. It's not something. It's something that happens subconsciously even before we realize what we're seeing. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, it's if you if you blindfold someone and don't let them use their hands Mm -hmm. and they only have to use their ears, they're going to incorporate prior information a lot more Mm -hmm. than if they had all the other information as Mm -hmm. well.
0: So the reason I ask is because I'm still trying to imagine what an answer to this how perception works question would look like or what kinds of predictions you would be able to make based on your results. And I I guess an example would be um, prior experience changes perception more when the stimulus is less certain. I mean, that's an example of a prediction that I can... Imagine, but can you talk about what kinds of predictions you're making are you, Are they based on the certainty of the stimuli or on completely different variables um, that The prediction
1: you just mentioned is definitely one of the predictions that people have made before, so uh, what a lot of people do is they sort of vary the certainty of a stimulus mm-hmm. and then try to look at exactly how the percept or the perception is formed. And so a lot of work has been done on that actually in the last five years or so, and people are increasingly finding that the brain is sort of statistically optimal, like it integrates everything in this perfect way. And so what we're trying to understand more is how it does this. So Mm -hmm. we, we know that the brain does this, and we want to understand... If we look at the activity of neurons, can we tease apart which neurons are representing prior experience, which neurons are representing information coming from various modalities, and how are they sort of putting all that information together?
0: So there are a lot of really interesting implications of this work. And in describing your research, you write that, in essence, we don't perceive the world at all as it really is. Think optical illusions. But that is precisely what makes us so incredibly intelligent. So I know you referred to this a bit in the beginning of the conversation, but can you talk a little bit about the implications of your work for how we understand intelligence? Right,
1: yeah, definitely. So I think sort of in the 70s when the whole artificial intelligence thing started going, everybody got really excited because they were like, all we need to do to, you know, do human intelligence is make computers that can like take in a lot of data from the outside world and make like a one-to-one mapping so that like we have it in the inside world and then you know based on that intelligence is just the next step but actually we're finding out that intelligence is really inextricably linked to perception the ways in which we as humans perceive the outside world is already the way in which we are acting intelligently Mm. so we can for example recognize an object no matter what orientation that object is is shown to us Mm -hmm. so and we and our perception of that object immediately is grouping it into something meaningful Mm -hmm. and that's something that for example computers can't do they can't even do simple things like object recognition Mm. Um, and it looks like the problem is that they're not sort of perceiving the world Mm -hmm. intelligently which is what we're so good at Mm -hmm. and so in understanding how it is that we incorporate so much information in order to just understand what's going on around us Mm -hmm. um we might be able to understand what it is that makes humans so intelligent.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like intelligence moves from being something that just resides in our brains to something that's more of an interaction. It's a relationship between us and the world that's just continuously... Definitely, definitely. It's like a dance. (laughs) (laughs) Intelligence is just dancing with the world. (laughs) Can you salsa with the world? (laughs) Um, Okay, so how about the implications of your work for the nature-nurture... Debate.
1: so I think the the reason that 's a difficult question is because nature and nurture in this case are really inextricably well, linked. yeah it 's not like neural coding is nature neural coding is is the result of nature and nurture right. at the same time, so that 's the whole point that neural coding changes very, very dramatically. And visibly in response to experience, which uh-huh. is nurture. Uh-huh. And so you can't you can't really tease them apart. And we're trying to understand how neural coding is dependent on nature, how it is dependent on nurture, and how that then causes the behavior that basically incorporates both of those. Mm-hmm. And so we're we're really trying to look at the mechanisms of how that works.
0: But then why am I referring to your work as the neural basis of perception? It seems like it's the the
1: um well the
0: complex interaction between experience, perception, and neural as as I guess as mediated through neural coding. I
1: mean I mean the thing is I think you're completely right in the sense that it is all very circular right we start with neural code, coding and then experience changes that which changes our interaction with the world which changes our experience which changes neural coding and so you have this loop that sort of goes on forever. And so it's really hard to say, well, I'm studying this. Uh-huh. So we're studying how experience affects neural coding, and how this then leads to experience dependent changes in perception.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Well, the <laughs> next time I introduce you, I'll say it that way, <laughs> if you can remind me what it was. <laughs> so for those of you who are just joining us, you're listening to The Graduates on CalEx. Today I'm talking to Hania Kover about the complex interaction between perception and experience as mediated through neural coding. So can you talk a little bit about your methodology? The
1: way we do this is we look at the activities of neurons in the brain mm-hmm. and we just basically look at neurons' receptive fields. And what that means is what neurons like best. Okay, So we, we find neuron A and neuron A starts firing a lot, a lot, a lot when it sees a picture of Stephanie. Mm-hmm. But when it sees a picture of me, it doesn't fire at all. So oh. we, we conclude that that neuron likes Stephanie. Its receptive <laughs> field is Stephanie, right? And we look at a different neuron, and it also has a receptive field for Stephanie. And another neuron also has a receptive field for Stephanie. So basically, the neural coding of Stephanie in this brain is very, very mm-hmm. pronounced.
0: We it likes Stephanie better. I uh, like Stephanie. <laughs> I'm so flattered. Um. So basically,
1: looking at neural coding just refers to looking at the activity of neurons in the brain and trying to understand what they like or what they code for, Mm -hmm. and then trying to understand how that leads to perception in different ways.
0: Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about some of your results?
1: Yeah. Okay. So specifically, um, what we work on, as I said, is auditory perception. And so last year, we had a paper that came out where basically what we showed is that you if you get an increase in the area in your brain that is representing a certain sound, Uh that you actually become worse at discriminating between sounds that are sort of around near to that sound and the idea basically is that because you've experienced one sound a lot it becomes overrepresented in your brain and subsequently you sort of perceive everything that is close to that sound as being that sound. Mm -hmm. And we think that that, this is one of the mechanisms that leads to categorical perception of speech sounds, Mm. which is the phenomenon where, you know, whether you say an A or someone else says an A with a low voice or someone else says A with a really high voice, I always hear it as Mm -hmm. A, and I, I don't really discriminate
0: the differences between that. Have you ever heard of the theory of morphic resonance? No. Okay, so this is a theory, some consider it a pseudo-theory, but interesting nevertheless, developed by a biologist named Rupert Sheldrake, who studied the way that plants grow. And basically, the first time an event happens, it has to tunnel its way through the gelatinous substance of space-time, right and then and it creates a tunnel for itself so that the next time it's going to happen that tunnel is already there waiting for it and it it's easier for that same event to happen um and the more and more that the event happens it kind of just fits itself into that tunnel because it already fits there and the tunnel can turn into a habit can turn into a rut can turn into an addiction right cuz all of a sudden anything that's at all similar to the event just kind of has is gravitationally pulled through that tunnel. And that sounds kind of similar to the way that you're describing perception. Seems
1: like. Definitely. Yeah. And I think that's a really good analogy. So the idea is that, you know, when, when you form these, what we call perceptual magnets, they sort of act as attractors to attract any sort of other things into this perceptual sort of black hole, I guess, in a way. And that's really, really useful in many ways, right? It's useful because it allows us to group things together. Mm -hmm. And one of the best examples of this is in language where, you know, we perceive speech sounds that are kind of, you know, like different utterances of of the word word la, for example, for English speakers, all sound sort of the same. And then ra sounds different, although there's all kinds of utterances, but they all sound like one thing. Whereas Japanese speakers who haven't had the chance to sort of form these perceptual magnets in those locations can't hear the differences between Ra Mm -hmm. and La. And so that's an example of how forming these perceptual magnets is really, really useful. But like you said, you know, if if you start perceiving everything as the same thing, that's obviously a bad thing. And there's definitely evidence that the more sort of diversity of sort of things you're exposed to at a very young age, the more you're able to subsequently perceive things properly or also form new kinds of perceptual magnets in different situations. Mm -hmm. So children who are bilingual and trilingual can definitely learn languages better later on, and that may be because they just don't have these very, very strong perceptual magnets in a few locations. Mm -hmm. Instead, they have many more perceptual magnets which all don't have as much attractive power, and therefore Mm -hmm. they're able to sort of deal with new situations Mm. and and new stimuli better
0: so good thing we have ipods that store tons of music because it means we'll have lots and lots of magnets (laughs)
1: yes (laughs) um so definitely you know this is just another piece of evidence that the more experience you have the the better you become at interpreting the world right so the premise here is that by gathering a whole bunch of information, a whole bunch of clues from over a long period of time, you are much, much better at dealing with every new situation. Um, And so, you know, it's been shown in other experiments that, you know, if if you have young babies that are in very rich environments, they're just able to learn better and to to be more intelligent later in life. Um, And there's also an idea that the more sort of diversity... You're exposed to at a very young age, the more sort of inferences you will be able to draw later in life on Mm -hmm. all sorts, in all sorts of different domains. Mm -hmm. And so there's lots of evidence that like bilingual and trilingual children Mm -hmm. are much, much more able to learn languages later in life. And part of the idea there is that they don't have these like very, very strong perceptual anchors that are sort of pulling anything that is similar mm-hmm. to tones in, in whatever language they know towards that tone, that mm-hmm. they're sort of more able to um, sort of...
0: Articulate the differences between exactly, things. Exactly. Yeah,
1: exactly. I mean, I think with neuroscience, a lot of a lot of the time you find that, you know, you come up with this theory and you're like, well, people have known that for uh-huh. thousands of years. Of course, you know, education is important yeah. and people have known for a very long time that you need to expose young children to a diverse uh-huh. environment. Um, later on in life but it's just nice when you start understanding why that is actually happening Uh and and what what, what's going on in the brain in these different situations
0: Uh uh-huh but okay actually I'm gonna I'm gonna push you on that because you said why it's happening so are you assuming that what's going on in the brain is the cause of this happening or
1: well I mean definitely we think that you know, what we see in terms of the activity of neurons is causal of what we see in terms of behavior and perception on all these things. Um, but sometimes, you know, people are like, well, that 's great now you know what 's going on at a neurobiological level, but I already knew mm-hmm. that diversity was important for my children, mm-hmm. but I think that um, what this research you know is really good for like it can be applied to medical disorders, for mm-hmm. example there there are certain conditions, for example dyslexia, that people now think are associated with a problem in perceptual processing. So there's some people who think that dyslexia comes about when children are unable to form these perceptual anchors that non-dyslexic children can. So mm-hmm. they, they basically can't really use their experience to guide their perception of new incoming information. And so understanding how that works definitely, um, you know, helps us develop therapies for these kids. There's a there's a company in San Francisco, there's a neuroscientist that started it, um, that actually has a training program for dyslexic children, which is based on sort of rewiring the brain mm-hmm. in ways that will help them form these perceptual anchors.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Another application of the research is, for example, schizophrenia, which is a condition characterized by perceiving things that aren't actually out there in the world. And so by understanding how perception works, we might be able to gain insight into what is going wrong in these patients who who start perceiving things that have nothing to do with reality. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay, so we will be right back. On next week's show, I'll be talking to Larissa Mann, a PhD student at Bolt Law School, about creativity and copyright laws. So please join me for The Graduates every Monday from 12 to 12.30 on CalEx. And The Graduates has swiftly moved into 2008 From AOL.com To Facebook So please visit Our very new Facebook page Search for The Graduate KALX On Facebook.com uh, You can become a fan Write on the wall Check the guests Of future shows Or suggest yourself As a guest So don't be shy That's The Graduate K-A-L-X You can search for that In quotation marks On Facebook Welcome back. Today I'm talking to Hania Cover about about the interaction between perception, experience, and neural coding. I'm curious, can you situate your the work that you're doing within the field of neuroscience in general? Do you f- is this approach that you're taking where you're really looking at this as as a dynamic interaction? Is that kind of a novel thing? Is that where neuroscience is headed? Is that your work specifically?
1: So I think it's definitely part of the the sort of very recent trend in neuroscience. Originally, what neuroscientists used to do is they sort of tried to find the neural code in the brain. So they're like, here's the outside world, which neuron is coding for this feature, which neuron is coding for this feature, and sort of trying to understand this one-to-one code that people thought were going on. But more recently, people have realized that there's a lot more going on than just a one-to-one mapping of the outside world into the inside world, and that we have an internal world that influences the external world and vice versa, and it's a very complex interaction between these two things. Exactly. <laughs> it's just like a dance. So. <laughs> um, and so definitely the field of neuroscience is starting to move in a direction where it's trying to understand how experience shapes perception, how you know the world shapes perception. Um, to try and sort of tease apart the neural code because the other method just wasn't really taking us um, where we wanted to go. Mm.
0: So um, how has your work influenced your own perception? No, I'm just kidding.
1: (laughs) 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 Well, so actually I have to say it made me a lot more aware of perception. I think I definitely took for granted that, you know, I could see everything around me and hear everything Mm. around me. And, you know, thinking about it a lot has made me just realize how amazing it is that we can navigate through the world and understand it.
0: Mm. So I feel like no discussion about this, at least within the context of academia, would be complete without the... um But doesn't your perception affect your perception of perception I bet you get that a lot so what's your (laughs) so what's your response to that
1: Um, definitely I mean I definitely agree that of course I'm limited by my perception um, in terms of understanding perception but I think that we have sufficient sort of scientific methods to feel confident that we're measuring things that are actually real. So we're not only I'm not only looking at the brain and relying on my visual signals of what is going on. We have technology that can Record things, and we have computers, which do have the great advantage that they actually do represent the world as it is. You know, that's what makes them stupid, but that's what <laughs> makes them reliable. So
0: you should just tell the philosophers that our brains, are, the, the the neural coding, is actually statistically optimized to understand perception.
1: That's true. That's, amazing. Yeah, that's a good argument. <laughs> I should use that.
0: Okay, so I know that everybody's thinking mind control, right? Uh-huh. So. <laughs> You can go in there and mess around with someone's neural coding and change the way that they experience the world. So, um, either, I mean, either for beneficial purposes or for not so beneficial purposes. Is there work being done on this?
1: So it's a really
0: good question. Um, I
1: know that there is some sort of therapy that's being tried on people with post-traumatic stress disorder, sort of, you know, after they've veterans coming back from war and things like that, where I think they're using certain sort of antidepressants where that have certain sort of kind of plasticity reducing effects to try and get rid of basically of the effects of experience on neural coding right mm. because what's happening in these patients is they have these horrible horrible memories that are sort of interfering with their lives in very very horrible ways and so if we could just get erase those from neural coding essentially maybe we could help these patients and i know people are looking into that but i don't know if they have any viable therapies can yet. i have some
0: no just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> when did you get et- eternal sunshine <laughs>
1: yeah. So Eternal Sunshine exactly is that idea where, you know, if we if we could only find out where memories were stored, we could, you know, erase them and then we wouldn't ever have to remember things we didn't want to. Mm. Um, That's definitely a science fiction movie. But, you know, <laughs> you know, maybe if we understand perception to the point where we can pinpoint the specific mechanisms that are leading to perception, we could mm-hmm. presumably uh, do things like that one day.
0: All right, well, to end on that ominous note, it was a pleasure talking to you, Hania.
1: Thank you very much.
0: <laughs> so you've been listening to The Graduates, a radio show dedicated to graduate student research on KALX Berkeley. My name is Stephanie Gerson. Please visit our Facebook page. Search for The Graduate CalX on Facebook.com and join me next Monday from 12 to 12.30.